Father, I thank you. I thank you for who you are and what you want to do in our lives even this very day. I pray, Lord, that our hearts are just open uh, to your Holy Spirit. That, Lord, as, as I share that anything I shouldn't say, I don't say. And anything I should say, I do say to bring honor and glory to your name. The Lord God, that we could grow together in the knowledge of who you are in and through our lives. We just thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. God bless you this morning. My table is coming. Thank you. We've been talking about fear. In fact, you know, the song set really <laughs> hammered that home uh, today. We, we talked about a lot of things concerning fear. And the series, the last couple of weeks, that's what we've been dealing with. Dealing with the phobias that can happen in our lives. Those, those fears that are not of God. And we uh, talked about the difference between the fear of God and, and then the fears of this world. The fear of God is, is, is a reverential type of fear. It's a healthy kind of fear. It's putting God where He belongs. And where does God belong in our lives? Number one, top, top of the heap, right? You know, God, God is who he is. And, and have a fear, a, a healthy fear and respect for who he is. And that's just so important. But we've been focusing primarily on the phobia kind of fears, the fears that are unhealthy in our lives. The kind of fears, as the song says, takes your breath away. You know, causes you to, to, to stumble, causes you to even stop in moving forward in your life. In fact, let me just take a survey right here and now. How, how many of you at some point in your life, it could be before Jesus or after Jesus became part of your life, did fear hinder you in doing something? Just put your hand up. Yeah, I dare say that pretty well everybody put their hand up. Why? Because fear plays a role in our lives. And so we need to know how to deal with it. And really these last couple of weeks, that's what we've been talking about. Last week we focused primarily on the source of fear. And it's important for us to realize this, that before Satan shows up. Before the serpent shows up in the garden, the word fear is not even in the Bible. So it wasn't until Satan shows up and messes up everything that fear became a part of the Hebrew language, you know, showing up in the Bible. And so we need to understand that, that that is the source of fear uh, and, and to deal with it accordingly. You know, don't be nice to fear. You know, fear needs to be dealt with. In fact, I made this statement uh, at the first service and, and here's the thing. The world wants you to be able to manage the fear in your life. In other words, to, to try to help cope with it, to deal with it. And to be honest with you, I understand why they do that, because they don't have the answer. But as believers in Christ, we do have the answer, and the answer is Jesus. And he defeated Satan on the cross at Calvary, and Satan is what? The author of fear. So Satan's been defeated. And so all we're hearing now, when, when we're being uh, you know, tormented by fear, we're hearing the growl. Of the enemy. We're hearing the bark of the enemy in a sense. But he has lost his authority over us. He no longer has power over us except for what we give him. You hear what I said? Except for what we give him. In other words, if we give in to fear, if we give in to our phobias, it holds us back. What have we done then? We've submitted to the lordship of Satan. And you and I, we don't want to do that, do we? We want to submit to the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in doing so, we renounce fear in our lives. Now here's the thing. That sounds uh, pretty easy, right? You know, just renounce it, everything's fine. No, there's a process to walk through, isn't there? And so we, we're going to talk a little bit about that at the end, but I need to move forward and talk about something else that's been on many people's hearts. I've been questioning over the last number of weeks, you know, what's our stand, you know, as a church concerning Hamas, concerning Israel, concerning the Palestinians, concerning the Middle East. How many people got questions about that? Anybody? Okay. 
All right, so you got some questions. And so different people have asked me, and, and at first I was going to actually share that, you know, the very weekend that it all happened. And I felt the Lord say, no, just let the dust settle on what's going on. You know, it's going to still be there. You know, and so what, what I wanted to do is give you more of a measured answer back. Not a knee-jerk reaction, not just kind of a, a pulpit-pounding kind of thing, but rather, what does God really say about all this? So before I can even go down that road, I need you and me, in a sense, to understand God's perspective on mankind. Because this sets the tenor or the tone of what I'm going to be talking about. So let's look at this scripture. It's 2 Peter 3, 9. This, in a sense, just sets the stage for everything. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This is a great scripture. You know, some versions say God is not slack, uh, you know, instead of using the word slow. You know, the idea is that, that God is not asleep somewhere in heaven and, uh, you know, not aware of what's going on in the world. Let me tell you something that you need to just drill down into your heart and get it settled. God is in control of eternity. God is in control of this world even at this very point. And you might say, well, God, you're not doing a very good job. No, no. Listen, you need to understand something. God is aware of everything going on. He's allowing it to happen. Why? Because of this very scripture. That none should perish, but all should come to repentance. In other words, God is giving time. This is known as the age of grace. The church age, the age of grace. It's a time where God is allowing mankind to, in a sense, do what they want. And hopefully many will choose Jesus. That's what this season is. It's a time of grace. And again, I've heard lots of preachers when horrible things happen around the world, it's God's judgment. No, it's not. Listen, when God's judgment happens, and you can read the book of Revelation, talks about God's judgment, then you can see you'll, there'll be no, oh, it might be or it might not be. It will be God's judgment that gets poured out on that day. But not yet. Right now, we're in an age of grace, a time where, where God is refraining from judgment and is pouring out grace and mercy so that people have time to repent and change from their ways. Now, does that mean that, that uh, God uh, is opposed to prisons or, or God is opposed to you know, people being punished for doing crimes? No, of course not. So, so I'm not saying that in any way. Listen, if someone commits a crime, hurts someone, does something wrong, there's a penalty to society that needs to be paid for. Amen? And so just as we look at this scripture, he's not slow. He's very much in control. The Bible says he raises up kings, he pulls them down as well. The question is, and the reason why I have this scripture is, what are you and I doing? Here's what, here's what I've found that, that many Christians are, and I've been as guilty as anyone. We become armchair quarterbacks. Do you know what that term means? You know, you're watching a football game, and you're in the armchair, and you're like, oh, they should have done this, or they should have done that instead. You know, and that's called an armchair quarterback. And we become what I call armchair Christians. We're just sitting in our chairs, you know, and we're like, well, God should have done this, and God should have done that, you know, and, and we're just throwing out our opinions about this and that. Let me tell you something. We shouldn't be doing that. In fact, it says this, that, that God, you know, is not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Here's the thing. He is going to return. Could it be that we're hindering his return? You ever thought about that? Because the Bible says elsewhere that he will not return until the gospel is preached to every nation, to every person. And so who's supposed to do that? Have a look in the mirror. Have a look. Take a really good look. It's you and me. 
And so our job isn't to sit in the armchair of life and, and give our opinion about this and our opinion about that, but our job is to be a light to the dark world. I think we spend too much time judging circumstances and situations based on half-baked opinions because we don't know the whole story. And we need to put that all aside and say, what is my mission in life? I didn't say this at the first service, but so often we think that, that our job is, you know, to fight. And, and we've got a war against this and war against that. God hasn't called us to do that. But we're actually the people, the Red Cross. That's our job. That's our job, that in this wars of life, everything that's going on, our job is the Red Cross to bring life to everywhere we go, to bring restoration and hope and healing. That's your job and my job. We forget that, and we get all so opinionated that we couldn't even help someone if we wanted to because, you know, we've created such a barrier of hate between us and them, we've forgotten what our job is. It's quiet in here today. You know why it's quiet? Because I'm, I'm, I'm poking something that in all of us is there. I'm poking me too in this. In fact, this wasn't planned, what I've just said now. In fact, some of you were the first service. Did I talk about this part at all? No, I didn't. But I believe it's the Lord. And so at times we just have to be flexible to that. And here's the thing. I don't want you to think just like me. In fact, that could be pretty scary. One of me is enough, all right? But what I want to do in the Lord is to cause you to maybe consider some things, to maybe have a different perspective on some things, to ponder some things, to, you know, as, as the Bible will talk about, ruminate on His Word so that it might bring you to a different place in your walk with Jesus. And I think many of us suffer, you know, that we don't have to because we're actually doing the wrong thing as we're walking here. God's called us to be a light, not a judge. Not an executioner, not, not, not any of those things, but to love on those around us, regardless of religion, regardless of race, regardless of color, regardless of what side of the tracks that we're born on. That, that's not our problem. That's above our pay grade, so to speak. Our job is to love on everyone equally, just as Jesus did. Amen? And so that's the context of what I'm going to get into. And so as I begin to do this, I want you to understand my heart again. I believe that God loves Jews. I believe he loves Arabs. I believe he loves Gentiles. I, I believe that he even loves the people in Hamas. And you might say, oh, no, no, and Hezbollah. Yeah, the Bible says that Jesus gave his life for anyone who would receive him. So that means that God loves them too. Now, the fact they haven't received him, that, that's on them. But God loves them. They are lost souls. And so you and I need to get a right perspective on this. We need to kind of stand back a little, not watching the news headlines of this and that. Let me tell you something. The most informed person here, whoever that might be, it's not me probably, all right? Most informed person here only knows a little bitty part of really what the truth is. We have no idea what goes on in the back rooms of different things, of the nations and all that. We, we have no full understanding of the geopolitical parts of what's going on. We have no idea of the financial parts that are playing in the role in the Middle East. We have no idea idea at all. And I'm not here to actually talk about those things. Why? Because I'm not informed enough. It's not my job. But I do know a little bit about what God has to say about it. And I believe that we as Christians need to go back to the source material because it hasn't changed. And I think that you'll have a little different perspective. My hope is all of us, well, I have this has caused me to perceive things and see things a little differently as I've even studied this out. So in a sense, bear with me as we walk through this. And, and if you disagree, I'm sorry, but I'm not. You, you get what I'm saying? In other words, I, I'm just saying this is what God's Word says. And in fact, let me just say something. 
There are some things in God's word that I personally disagree with. And you might say, well, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're, you're, you're a pastor. You're supposed to agree with that. No, no. You, you, listen to what I'm saying. I personally disagree. I don't like what's being said. But when the day is over, I'm like, Lord, I'm going to do it your way. That's called faith. That's called trust. You don't need faith when you agree with it, right? You don't need trust when you agree. It's when you disagree, when you've got a problem. But you say, Lord, I trust you, and I will still do it your way. All right, so I want you to understand, I'm in the same boat with many of you, disagreeing or having a, a not, not a full understanding of part of the word, but I still choose to follow it. What are you going to do? Do you think your opinion carries more weight than God's word? That's scary. It really is. Think about that. Think about that. In other words, we can have an opinion, but if it isn't lined up with God's word, then you better have some serious prayer time with God and say, Lord, I got a problem here, and I know you're not the problem. I am. Help me. Help me understand this. And to submit to the word of God. Amen? The word of truth. All right. So we've talked a little bit about this. So first of all, let me say this. I am pro-Israeli. But in a sense, I'm pro-Palestinian as well. In other words, if, if they could have a, a two-state system and do that, I'm okay with that. I, I really am. So I want you to understand, no, no, you just listen, just listen, all right? God loves the Palestinians as much as he loves the Jews. And so it'd be fine for them to have a place to live, and I, I'm fine with that. But let's walk through this a little bit. You need to understand some things that God has said. Again, here I've made a statement. Now, what does God say about all of this? And this is what we need to begin to do. And so, if you are making notes, write down Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 22. That's your reading assignment for tonight, all right? Because I'm going to just give you a little bit of background. So, in Genesis chapter 12, it opens with God sending Abram from the land of Ur to the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan is what we know as Israel today, okay? In fact, it's actually a little bit bigger land, all right? And so that happened. God, you know, took him to this land. It wasn't Abram's idea. Hey, let's just go on a vacation there. God sent him to a specific place. And then as we go through a few more chapters, we get to chapter 15. And in that, oh, by the way, why is this important to you and I? Abraham is called the father of our faith in the New Testament, all right? So this isn't just Old Testament stuff. This all comes through. The, the bloodline comes all the way through to Jesus who is our Lord and Savior today. This is really important stuff, all right? And so here we have, uh, God shows up and, and says, Abram, uh, you know, I'm going to establish a covenant, and you're going to be a part of it, a participant in a sense. But it's what's known as an unconditional covenant, meaning that it wasn't dependent upon what Abram did or didn't do. It was just he was there, and God said, I'm going to do this. And so he establishes a covenant, which is a whole cool thing in itself. But in it... He said this, to you and to your descendants, I give you this land. And he actually defines it. And it's the land of Israel. All right? He defines, you know, the borders from sea, you know, to here. All, and it's defined. He said, this is yours. Now, did Abram ask for this? He didn't ask for it, right? God brought him from another land. God just said, this is yours. Uh, and so we have this going on. Okay. He also made another promise. He said, look it, you and Sarah are going to have a baby. Now, they were pretty old, okay? So, Abram, you know, we're talking, you know, past the 70s. You know, they're old, old, old. And so, they got impatient. God, God promises. How many people have gotten impatient with God's promises? Yeah. Can I tell you something? Bad things happen when we get impatient with God's promises. Because what we try to do is do our own thing. 
And so what Sarai did, said, look, it doesn't look like I'm going to have a baby. Uh, look, why don't you take Hagar, my slave, and why don't you have a child through her, and then, you know, that, that's how we'll carry on the family line. And so Abram, being a guy, said, okay, sure. You know, and, and so they do their thing, and, and Ishmael is born. Now the problem is, Ishmael wasn't the son of promise, was he? He wasn't. And so, a little more time goes on, God reiterates, look it, you're going to have a son through Sarah. And she does. His name is, anyone know? Name means laughter, Isaac. And so, Isaac was born, you know, and so he's quite a bit uh, younger than Ishmael, right? And so, here's the problem. You've got now two family lines, two sons, all right? Now, this is actually where our Bible is different from the Koran. Up until this point, it's the same, same start. But here's the thing. The Islamic people, the Muslim people, this is where it divides, where they say that Ishmael is the promised son, and then they follow their lineage through, through him, whereas we follow the word of God, and we say, no, the promise was through Isaac. All right, so that's where the split happens, and that's where the deception begins to happen. It's interesting that Ishmael has 12 sons that are princes, and Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons who are princes, and that's how the division all happens. And so this story goes on, and there's a lot more to it, but here's the thing. This really is a battle about land and lineage, okay? And lordship. That's really what it's about. They, they put it up here. And, and so, I didn't tell this story at the first service, but here's what I've learned about inheritances. They're messy. My mom and dad, you know, God bless them, they've gone on to be with the Lord now, so that's why I can tell this story. They did a number of years ago, I bet you 20 years ago, they did what's known as a living inheritance. I call it more a living hell. All right, but it's a living inheritance. All right, so here's what happened there was five of us in our family, so they decided, okay, this person's going to get this. And there was quite a few assets, you know, they were given money and stuff and property and different things. So it turned out that our immigration status was such we couldn't travel back to Canada to be at the physical meeting. So they taped it for us on a cassette tape. You know, I'm dating myself. Probably some of you don't even know what that is, right? It's got two little wheels and tape. You know, I'm messing with you. So, so, so I got to hear the tape. I am so glad that Sandra and I weren't there. So glad. Because, uh, you know, as they're saying, hey, this is what's going to happen. This son's getting this. And, and, and one of them said, well, well, how come they're getting that? I wanted that. You know, and literally they're just like, it was like this free-for-all thing. I'm like, holy moly, I thought I had a loving family. You don't find out what's in people till money's involved. That's something I'll tell you right now, right? Anyway, so it was a mess, right? So let's go back to Ishmael and Isaac. See, God said it's of the line of Isaac that the inheritance is, all right? But the Islamic people, the Muslims say, no, it's not. It's of Ishmael. And so this goes right back to the land. Who really owns it? So who does? Let me tell you who owns it. God does. And God, as the father, decided who gets it. And who was it? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 tribes. That's who gets it. Israel gets it, all right? Now, you may disagree. You may have a problem with it. Take it up with Jesus, all right? In, in other words, 
I didn't make this stuff up. I'm just telling you what the Word of God says. And so what we have to do is what? Honor the Word of God. So does that mean that the, you know, the, 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 the Palestinians are, are out? No. You know what's interesting? And, and the Scripture even bears this out. In, in chapter 16 of Genesis, there's actually a prophecy concerning Ishmael. And it says a couple of things. It says he's going to become a great people. So it's going to become a huge amount of people. You know, without number, it even says. But he's going to be a wild donkey of a man. And I like some versions. A wild ass of a man. Literally, it says that, all right? You know, I can say that because it's in the Bible, all right? And, and so literally, you know, this guy, and it says that he will be against all his brethren. In other words, he will be at contention and strife all the time. Now, as you look at the Arab nations, what, what do you see today? You see that, don't you? And so it's happening all the time. And you might say, well, hold it. What about the Palestinians ha having, having their own state, you know, having their own country? Listen to me. You can do the research on this, but please don't use Wikipedia. Please don't use Facebook. Don't use, you know, go back a few hundred years to source material of, of people who really know what they're talking about, historians that just recorded history and not their opinion attached on it. But as, as you look, you could just see here that they... <laughs> I just, this is unbelievable. Three times, three times the Palestinians were offered their own land. Three times, major times, but other times as well, minor times. And the Israelis agreed. In other words, it wasn't them bringing it forth. It was the League of Nations, the UN, other people saying, look it, listen, let's, let's divide this up. And, and actually up to 50% of the land of Israel, Israel was willing to say, yeah, you can have that. We just don't want to fight anymore. And do you know what the... Do you know what the Palestinians said? They said no. They said no. Now, let me show you why they said no. You need to understand the spirit of what's behind everything going on. This isn't about two nations. It's about a fight between good and evil. It's a fight between God and Satan, all right? It's between what God has said is going to happen and a people group who doesn't want that to happen. So the leader of Hamas, one of the main leaders of Hamas, you can Google this, see this for yourself. I'm not making this stuff up, all right? So here's what he said. This guy by the name of senior Hamas leader, Mahmoud Azahar. I'm probably mispronouncing it. I'm sorry. All right. We will not liberate Palestinian land only, but the 510 million square kilometers of planet Earth will come under Islamic rule with no Zionism. And that means Jewish nation or Jews and no treacherous Christians or Christianity. You see that? That's them. So why do you think they said no? Because it's not enough. Their answer is not only to get rid of Israel as a nation, but actually to conquer the whole earth. And listen, this has been tried already. You know, when the Ottoman Empire came, you know, and the Turks came and tried to bring Islamic rule all, all to the Israeli area, you know, they, that was their mandate, was to take over the whole globe. Now, again, I, I talked about this. Israel's been run over a whole bunch of times, haven't they? You know, in the Bible, we talk about the Assyrians first came and took away, you know, their, their land. Babylonians came and, and took a bunch of them away. And when we go on and, and we see other nations came along, you've got the Greeks and, and then the Romans, all right? In fact, the Romans were the first one to coin the name Palestine, to call Israel Palestine. Why? They wanted to separate this name that called them back to be, be, be a nation, to call it Palestine because it didn't mean the same thing. In fact, it means Bedouin or, or just a person who doesn't really have a place to live. 
And so that's what they called that. And then it goes on. We had the French came in for a little while. You had the Ottoman, Ottoman Empire. Then I think the French show up again. And then finally the British show up. And they did what was called the Balfour Declaration. It was something that happened in, in 1917. And basically it said, we would like to see Israel become a nation again. But before that, in Russia, there was a group of Jews that said, look it, we really want to go back to our homeland. And they began something known, and you saw that in that statement, a Zionist movement. And basically that was a call back to go home. And so there was a reason why they were doing that. The, Rus the Russians were persecuting the Jews. Millions were killed. A lot of times we only think of the Holocaust, you know, World War II and, and what Nazi Germany did. Listen to me, millions of Jews were executed and, and displaced before that, years before World War I actually. And so there was this call to go back home. Here's the thing. It wasn't just a few people thinking this was a good idea. This was part of God's plan. Remember I said God's in control? There's a timing for things. And I believe that God put it on their heart saying, look, it's time for you to begin to come back home. And so they began a, a migration back home. But let me tell you something that nobody tells you unless you dig. There was always a presence of Jews in the land of Israel from the time of Abraham all the way through, except for the 400 years when they were all in Egypt because of famine and nobody was there because you couldn't grow anything. But after that point, there was always a small contingent of them were there all the way through. As nations came in and nations went out and swept in and swept out, there was still Jewish people that stayed there, a remnant the Bible talks about. And so just because they weren't called Israel anymore doesn't mean they don't have a right to it. And here's the thing, God said it. So if you have a problem with it, you got to take it up with God. And, and you, have, you either got to believe the word or you don't. And you might say, but I, but, listen, there's no buts in this. This is what the word of God says. And you have to make the choice, am I going to trust God's word? So again, am I opposed? Do I hate the Palestinians? No, not in any way. It, I just wish that they'd stop fighting against God because between you and me, they're not going to win. All right? So let me just share two verses before we go on to a little part two this, the, today. And so there are two immutable things I want to show you in Scripture. Amos 9, verses 14 and 15. I, this is God speaking. I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. You see, who's talking? God. And he's saying, this is the way it is. And so it's got to be settled with that. Now, if you remember that, that Hamas leader, he actually had some bad things to say about us as well. He called us treacherous Christians, all right? Well, what does the word say concerning us? Philippians 1, 6. And I am certain, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. The Jewish nation is not going anywhere. Christianity is definitely not going anywhere. And so Hamas can say what they want to say but they will not take over the earth. I can assure you of that. Do you know that Hamas is actually in the Bible, the name Hamas? It's found in, uh, let me just give you the verse, in, in Genesis 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. That word violence, the root of it, is Hamas. Now it's interesting, they translate, Hamas is translated in the Arab language to zeal or to zealousness. But in the Bible, it's murder, Violence, destruction. Let me ask you which name they're living up to. The Arabic version 
or maybe the deeper version of the Hebrew version. It's all I can, you know, there it is. You know, have, have a look at it. And so I just encourage you to maybe change your perspective a little bit about what's going on. Because all we see, you and me, we see these headlines. Boop, boop, and we're like, oh, man, you know, what about... We need to take a step back, look at the big picture, and say, what does God say about this? Now, I do want to say this. Does that mean that everything Israel has done is right and perfect? Definitely not. Definitely not. That's just like you and me. Let's bring it down to you and me. Here we are trying to follow Jesus, do what we're supposed to. How many mistakes have we made, right? You know? I know some of you know, but for the rest of us, including me, I've made my share. So the point is, obviously on a micro level, they've done some bad things. Some people have got hurt that shouldn't have got hurt. I, I, I have no issue with that. But here's what I want you to know. From a bigger picture, Israel is part of God's chosen people. And they play a role in end times. We're not going to talk about it today. But the point is, they're unmoved. And the Bible says for you and I to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And God's eye is still on that little dot of land that you need an arrow to point to when you look at it on a globe. Amen? Amen. All right. So, if you have any questions about that, you want to talk to me about happy to talk to you. Uh, love to do that. All right? So, let's switch gears. I want to conclude our time together with just one portion of Scripture. You have your Bibles, or you'll see it here up on the screen as well. It's Psalms 23. I want to finish this series on, on fear with David's perspective on it. You know, King David had a very unique perspective on how to deal with fear. And I think it's a great way to end things here for us today, all right? So let's just read it through quick, six verses, and then we want to focus on just a couple of little ones, all right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's have a look back at verse 4. As, as we look at it, you know, here is, is uh, David, and, and he makes a statement, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will what? Fear no evil. Now why? He tells us why. For you are with me. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. If you're going to do some research, the word rod and staff, you know, referring to a shepherd's staff, you know, the pointy end and the hook end. But when you go deeper into the original Hebrew, it actually speaks of the word of God and the spirit of God. So literally David is saying, look, I'm not going to fear because I've got God's word as a foundation. I've got God's spirit to guide me on the inside. And when you have that, you have, you know, you, listen, if God before you, what's the Bible say? Who can be against you? When you have the word and the spirit, listen, you, you're a majority and you will always win against your enemy. But look now at the next verse and that's where I want to focus, all right? And so uh, as you go on, okay, look at what I've underlined. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Then you, know, you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Now, let me ask you a question. If your enemies, you know, maybe like dangerous people, let's, you know, just really dangerous people, and they were like there, could you sit down and eat a meal? I know I couldn't. Not in the natural. Because you're, you're, all your weapons are got. You're seated for one thing. They're standing, right? You've got the best knife you got is probably a butter knife in your hand, right? And a fork. You know, how, how can you defend yourself? In other words, you're not going to feel very safe sitting at a table with your enemies surrounding you, are you? 
But look at what it says. Who prepared the table? God did. So now all of a sudden, it's not just you and the enemy or your enemies or you and fear. God is part of it. God prepared the table, right? You know, in the presence of my enemies. Okay, so there's a couple ways we can interpret this. We could say, well, look it, because God's there, your enemies are not, they're, they're not going to attack, right? But here's the thing. They're still the enemies, and, and they still could be dangerous maybe in the future, maybe after you eat, right? And you, you go outside, and, you know, maybe they're still there. So the point is, you know, one interpretation could be that because God's there, your enemies can't attack you. How many people say, that's not bad, right? Okay. In other words, we don't see anything in Scripture that would come against that. But I want to suggest to you there's maybe another alternative understanding of this. And the only reason that I can even talk about it this way is because of who wrote it. Who wrote it? Anyone remember? I said it earlier. King David. Yeah, King David. It's really important for you to know that. Now, we need to go back in history a little bit and understand what I'm going to say and why, why there could be truth to it. When kings in that day would conquer other kingdoms, they didn't just kill everybody. You know, sometimes they made slaves out of people. Uh, sometimes they did all kinds of different things. But one thing that they often did was not kill the king they captured. They would bring the king back home with them. And you're like, that's crazy. Why bring your enemy back home with you? Why, why would you want that? Well, listen, they didn't have video cameras to film the victories, right? They didn't have all, all the things that they, they could, uh, you know, record what happened. So they would have oral recordings, in other words, of the person who was there. So what better to have the king give an oral reciting or recording of how they were defeated? And so that's what kings would do. They would have the conquered kings sit at their table and be there. Now, here's the thing. What if that king was a little vindictive? Like maybe like, uh, you know, maybe their family had gotten killed or their best friends and, and the fact that their whole nation got destroyed probably wouldn't make them very happy either. So the king, the conquering king, here's what he would do with the king that was conquered. Now again, this sounds a little gross, but I'm just telling you what they did, all right? They would chop off the conquered king's thumbs and big toes. And the reason they did that is that they couldn't run away because with your big toes, you don't have balance, you can't run. And without your thumbs, you can't hold a sword. You'd hold a dinner fork maybe and maybe a knife somehow. But the point is they no longer were a threat to the conquering king. So what would happen is they're sitting at the table, you have all these kings that have been defeated sitting there as well, and, and the conquering king would say, hey, tell me how I defeated you, you know, whatever. You know? And the king would have to recount it, and, and that's what they would do. That was something they did back in that time. So here's my alternative suggestion to that scripture. Put that back up again, where, where it talks about, there we go. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You see, the enemies are now defeated sitting at the table and become part of the story of that king's life. How does this work for you and I? What, what am I talking about? You see, you're not to manage the fear in your life. You're to conquer it. And so instead of it being there, standing there, being a menace, you know, trying to, trying to, you know, just waiting to pounce on you, it's now thumbless and toeless, spiritually speaking, sitting at your table that God has prepared and now has become a part of your testimony of victory over the enemy. This is a big deal. This is what God wants. So my question to you this morning as, as I close right now is this. How many of the fears in your life are sitting and how many are still standing? Let's stand together.
See, the answer, David had the answer. And it's always about the Lord. The Lord was there with him. See, the answer is Jesus. It always has been, always will be. All right? Jesus is your answer to overcome any phobia, any fear in your life. And not just manage it. Jesus doesn't want it to just manage He wants it defeated so it becomes a part of your testimony of how you overcame that fear that now is in your past, seated and overcome at the table. Amen? So just every head bowed just for a minute. You know, as we finish out this series, this is kind of my last call on this. But are you struggling in some areas of fear? Is fear still standing in your life? And if it's so, just be honest with me and with Jesus. Just put your hand up, all right? I appreciate that. appreciate those hands raised everywhere. Okay, you can put those hands down. Lord, I thank you that the answer is found in you. And Lord, you're so unique. For some of us, the deliverance is, is immediate. That just, that we, we give it to you, and, and all of a sudden, like the next day, we're like, oh, this isn't bothering me anymore. But Lord, for others, there's a progressive healing that happens. Lord, I'll be honest with you. I don't care how you do it. I just ask that you do it. I thank you, Lord God, that right here, right now, are your children asking for help. And your word says that when we ask, you'll not turn away, but you will be there. You will answer us. Whoever calls upon your name, you will answer. So Lord, right now, as you're preparing that wonderful banquet table, as we're seated there in your presence, and fear shows up, <laughs> just as you helped Brenda this morning, that, Lord God, you will just say what you're going to say, and those chains drop off, no longer in bondage to that fear. I thank you, Lord, that if you can do it for Brenda, you can do it for any one of us. So, Lord, right now, for even those watching, I just pray complete deliverance from fear, that fear will no longer hold anyone captive in this church. I thank you, Lord God, that you are faithful. So we give this day to you. Pray that we walk with you and in you. And in everything we do, we bring honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you this morning.